0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your co-host, Neil Chatterjee, back again this week with my co-host, Brianne Deppish. Brianne, thanks for uh, another week of the Plugged In Podcast.
1: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, Neil, Uh, live and in person. We are in studio for the first time in God knows how long.
0: Much easier to do in person. It's much more fun as well. Well, let's dive right in. You've been doing some great reporting this week. You reported on the Biden administration's offshore
1: lease cancellations. Uh, Not just the cancellations themselves, but also what it portends for uh, offshore lease program, you know, for the next several months as well. Basically, what happened was this week, the Department of the Interior announced that it would be canceling three lease permits in uh, the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Alaska. This amounts to millions of acres in federal land that would be taken off For the Alaska cancellation, they cited uh, regulatory issues. And for the Gulf of Mexico cancellations, they said there were just various uh, court court things that held it up. But regardless, people really seized on that moment to point to the fact that the Interior Department's five-year offshore lease program is about to expire next month, actually. And the Biden administration has actually made no progress on submitting a proposal. Arguably couldn't have come at a worse time. Yeah, let's let's pull
0: on that thread a little bit. So here we've got gas prices uh, continuing to set new records every day. Uh, Americans really feeling this in their wallets, particularly when they go to the pumps. The Biden administration is out there doing everything they can to calm people. They're talking about, you know, possible price gouging and things like that but here an opportunity to increase domestic energy production and they pull
1: away. How does this make sense? It doesn't. And uh, quite honestly, this was something that I pointed out in my reporting yesterday. I spoke to people who told me that, you know, once the proposal, which, you know, again, interior department has not filed yet. uh, Once the proposal's filed, it takes an additional six to 12 months before it's finalized and approved. So that's actually, you know, even if the administration were to move quickly and file something immediately, that's still going to be a you know six to twelve month suspension. So letting the prolapse is really really dangerous. Uh, Democrats are even getting on board. Actually, a group of four Texas Democrats wrote to Biden earlier this week, urging him to put out a five year proposal. Uh, and we've seen action from Senators Manchin, Cinema, Kelly, and some others that are really urging Biden to act in this space.
0: Yeah, I saw Senator Manchin uh, was very critical. He, I believe. In his typical West Virginia vernacular, called it just awful policy, and he even said that he was skeptical.
1: That's what I'm hearing. Actually, lawmakers were really concerned. They had out, they'd filed some uh, things asking to see where where uh, the interior department department was at in terms of drafting the proposal, and basically came out a little bit later saying that there was nowhere close, you know, no end is in sight for the proposal. There's a ton of work that needs to be done. I don't think a finish line is in sight. I don't know how seriously they were taking it, you know, prior to prior to this energy crisis, but the optics certainly aren't great.
0: I mean, this is just tough, you know, from my perspective, we're at a point where the oil and gas industry in particular, they're, they're just looking for clear signals. But the administration has been all over the place. And the this kind of whipsawing back and forth to try and appease all these different constituencies is just causing more problems. Uh, and I think part of the challenge, look, from, from my standpoint, two big constituencies of the Democratic Party for the last three decades have been environmental groups and labor unions. And what we're seeing now is, for the first time, a schism, a real split Occurring amongst those uh, in prior weeks uh, about the uh, solar investigation, the anti dumping investigation taking place at the Commerce Department. And you're seeing this back and forth. And the Biden administration is having trouble placating both constituencies in the solar fight. The solar groups are basically saying, hey, look, this will have a devastating impact on the deployment of these clean energy resources and the Biden administration's ability to meet its climate goals. But they want to bring the supply chain home and create jobs here in the US. It's caused a total division there. The solar guys will tell you, hey, if you really care about climate change and you want to build solar, who cares where the component parts come from? Let's get them built as cheaply as possible. But labor unions are saying, hey, if you want to avoid the same supply chain and energy security issues that we're seeing in the oil and gas space in clean energy, we need to bring the supply chain home right now and not be dependent on China for our solar power. These are really, really complex questions, and I just think the administration is struggling badly with balancing these different
1: factors yeah, actually, you know, it's been interesting coming in with that outsider sort of perspective because, you know, from the get go, Biden's rhetoric here has really not matched the actions and the regulations that his administration that his agencies are taking. I think the interior department, especially has been uh, exhibit a, right? And I've spoken to so many uh, oil and gas executives drilling drilling CEOs who have said, that if they succeed, if they increase their production, it will be no thanks to the Biden administration, just because despite despite all their rhetoric, despite Biden's pleas to drive up production, they've really made no overtures in this space. Earlier, to your point about trying to placate both groups, I think Biden has managed to kind of alienate both.
0: I learned this uh, lesson early on in my career. It's better to pick a lane and just go with it rather than just swerving from one to the other, because then you just wind up alienating everybody.
1: Absolutely. Clearly, it's not. It's not a great time to be uh, encountering this debate. There's a lot at stake at that on both sides, um, you know. But I do. I do think he needs to take a hardline stance be with uh, environmentalists or with industry.
0: On this issue of high gas prices, with the EU trying to ban Russian oil imports, it's clear the problem of higher gas prices is not going away. Uh, is this the new normal? Is this something? gonna to have to live
1: with looks like it honestly uh and if europe's comments are any indication then you know that seems to be the case i know germany that has warned repeatedly that, uh, you know, just they've warned their citizens to just kind of expect these expect these high costs for the foreseeable future. You know, they're obviously they have a much bigger burden in terms of diverging away, reducing their dependency on Russian supplies. But this is something that is going to be a problem for for the West. I don't know what alternatives we have short of the U.S. just rapidly increasing supply uh, and countries in Europe, um, either building more terminals, uh, more LNG ports, you know, but those are all going to be really difficult issues to contend with.
0: It's been really interesting to me uh, the last 10 years or so to see the shift in Americans' views, at least American policymakers' views towards trade. Uh, You know, there was a period of time where, you know, the U.S. across party lines was invested in this idea of, of globalization and global trade and driving down costs for consumers and making business more efficient. And what we saw in the 2016 presidential election at least was the three finalists, Sanders, Clinton, and Trump, all had, you know, sort of similar protectionist approaches to trade. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, obviously President Biden and former President Trump disagree on many things. But I think in their approach to sort of trade policy, they seem to be, you know, taking kind of similar approaches. And I don't know what it's going to mean long term for the U.S. economy, particularly when we're dealing with inflationary pressures. Now you're starting to see conversations about import tariffs on steel. That's only going to make building out the necessary infrastructure that we need to get energy out of the ground into market that much more expensive and that much more challenging. It's a really, really bizarre time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we're seeing this in the oil and gas space. And we're also seeing this in another really key space that Biden has urged action in, which is critical minerals, mining. Yeah, I, I've i spoken to actually uh, several mining companies who, you know, told me at length about the, the hurdles and regulations that they've experienced under this administration. Obviously, mining, unlike oil and gas production, unlike drilling, is a years-long process. There's a lot that goes into it, you know, millions to billions of dollars, lots of regulation. But they've said that, you know, and this is even after Biden give, gave his speech where he authorized the Defense Production Act for critical minerals. They've said that they've actually Um, encountered more setbacks as a result of different Interior Department actions. You know, you've been in this space for a bit longer than I have. So correct me if I'm wrong. But it does seem to me that this is another instance where, you know, President Biden's statements are really incongruous with with his administration's regulations.
0: Yeah, look, these these are these are complex challenges to your earlier point. I, I, I feel sorry for the administration for what they're having to deal with. But the reality is these are not black and white issues. They're totally gray, totally complex. And you really need leadership to make critical decisions. Can't please everybody. You just got to pick one and go with it. And, uh, And they seem to really be struggling with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So actually, Neil, I have a question for you. You know, again, former FERC chairman, you are the energy guy, you know, everyone everywhere. And so I feel like you might be a great person to ask this. What steps do you think the Biden administration could or should be taking that they haven't yet to really help streamline this process, help incentivize more production?
0: Yeah, look, it's, it's not easy, but I think we have to start thinking pragmatically and responsibly for the long term. The, the geopolitical landscape has been transformed completely. I don't know how long the war in Ukraine will last. I hope the Ukrainians are victorious in a shorter time frame than we can expect. But either way, you know, the world is going to turn away from Russian gas, and that is going to mean a fundamental re thinking about our approach to energy policy, to geopolitics, to how we combat climate change while maintaining energy security and reliability. And so I think we just do need to take a longer term view. I think one of the challenges is we're making short term political calculations, instead of taking that long view towards what it will mean to decarbonize without sacrificing energy security without sacrificing reliability. And so we just have to find smart ways to go about it. Look, it's clear the world needs gas for the short term, the US needs gas for the short term. Here I'm talking about natural gas. It's not felt as viscerally, but every time they, you know, are getting a utility bill every month, you're seeing prices increase and you know, we've got to think through this and what this means and it means more in, you know, increased production here at home increase exportation, but we need increased domestic production to be able to have that surplus capacity to export to our allies. We don't want to lock in long-term emissions. I understand that. There are sophisticated financing mechanisms that we can utilize without harming the investors whose capital is required to move these things forward. It just is going to require some complex negotiations, but that's what leadership is about. And I'm hoping we can all collectively come together to move in this direction, take the politics out of it and focus on smart sensible solutions with a long-term view and not just hey what's going to get me through the midterm election what's going to get me through 2024
1: I couldn't agree more yeah you make some great points I definitely think that the the crisis we are facing right now requires that we put politics aside and requires that we move forward with all of those things that you just walked through I think you're absolutely right Neil
0: well speaking of complex things that garnered some news you did some other reporting that I found fascinating. Uh, can you tell us about this dead body that showed up uh, in a barrel?
1: Yeah. So, and this is actually what's happening uh, in Nevada is the v- reservoir has just dropped to record record lows due to, you know, the drought. Obviously, drought conditions have plagued the West for years and years. And last week, they discovered that there was a body in a barrel. Uh, I think some tourists discovered it same as this most recent body. And they said that the clothes, the, I guess the guy they discovered was wearing clothes, had its felt and stuff. He had been killed by a gunshot wound and his clothes were from like the mid 1970s sold at Kmart, which I thought was particularly interesting color. Yeah. And basically the police chief warned, uh, we're likely to see a bunch more bodies in the future, you know, as like, as the lake levels continue to drop, which is, pretty nuts that one was discovered days later by some paddleboarders. So this was not the mafia dumping bodies. I don't know if uh, they've known it's been a big, you know, body dumping site or or why he would have made that prediction, Uh, maybe just the location or what have you. But not not a lot of great stuff there. You know, you have you have the double whammy of the droughts and the human skeletal remains. Uh, The NOPEC bill is coming back around again. Now,
0: look, this thing's been around forever. I remember being a junior staffer in Congress when uh, this first got introduced. But now for the first time, it seems like there's actual momentum behind it. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners what the bill is and what its prospects may be and what the implications of that would be?
1: Yeah, NOPEC OPEC finally seems to be getting its moment in the sun. So Senators Grassley and Klobuchar introduced the No Oil Producing and Exporting Cartels Act. Uh, It's actually legislation that would enable the U.S. government to sue OPEC or OPEC plus allies like Russia for violating antitrust laws uh, and trying to control oil production. Basically, their argument is kind of similar to what they alleged against oil and gas companies when they hauled them before Congress last month. You know, the assertion is that they are artificially manipulating prices. There are some other things as well. But yeah, and the fact fact that they are kind of conspiring together to keep prices at a certain point. It's long been unpopular by presidents. Trump actually, uh, as with most things, his exact stance on NOPEC was unclear. He had seemed to uh, make comments suggesting he would have supported it had it passed. But it never got he never got the chance to because it never made it w- its way to his desk. But yeah, this has definitely gained a lot of momentum. This is a bill that's been introduced, I believe, sixteen or seventeen times in the House and Senate. So the fact that this is gaining momentum now really underscores the the front of mind priority that um, the energy debate has taken. So my colleague Jeremy actually wrote a story about electricity shortages potentially coming this summer. Um, And I'd just like to kick that over to you, Neil, to see what your thoughts are on that.
0: Yeah, look, it's interesting. uh, And it was a great piece of reporting. We're starting to see grid operators in Texas and California, uh, in the Midwest and elsewhere, talk about real concerns about potential shortages that could lead to uh, rolling blackouts and brownouts this summer, um, which is a real concern. Uh, It's something that I've been talking about for a while on this podcast and elsewhere. The fact that, you know, in our push to decarbonize, we've sort of taken our eyes off of reliability a little bit. Reliability is something that we in the U.S. uh, have had the good fortune to have been blessed with, but we sometimes take for granted the notion that when Americans hit the switch, the lights come on. What's happening now is you've seen in some areas premature retirements of some traditional forms of generation. These plants are being taken offline before the balancing resources are in place, to meet the power, to meet the demand. You couple that with uh, with surging demand being driven in some part by climate change, by high heat in the summer and colder winters. Uh, and it's a fascinating conundrum and a challenging one for grid operators. The irony is that uh, the steps we are taking to reduce carbon emissions to combat climate change uh, are leading to reliability challenges at a time when extreme weather events driven by climate change, are putting more and more pressure on these grids. And so uh, it's something to, to really keep an eye on this summer. We obviously saw in the last couple of years, you know, Texas, uh, in the aftermath of URI, their grid went uh, was pushed to the brink. California, due to extreme heat and wildfires, their grid was pushed to the brink. And grid operators are, are warning of that uh, this summer as well. And so you couple that with high natural gas prices and what we could be looking at is an expensive and reliability challenge summer in the, uh, in the electricity space. And it's something that uh, we, we, we got to be cognizant of. And it's just one more example of the, the complexity of energy policy and why you should tune in every week to the Plugged In podcast to, to get Brian and my breakdown on the, on the topics of the week. And so covered a lot today. Uh, thank you, yeah. uh, partner.
1: Thank you. I am I am learning alongside the audience yeah. <laughs> as I cover this this complex space. Uh, so I can certainly attest to that.
0: Well, as you know, here at the Plugged In Podcast, we like to close every week with something light uh, and, and uh, moving away and learning about our guests. And since we didn't have a guest this week and it was a one on one, Brianne, I'm going to ask you the question, you know, uh, tell me something interesting that you read this week?
1: Well, I've read a lot of interesting stuff this week, but uh, something that is energy, energy related was actually this piece that I read. It was written by uh, Douglas Macmillan. He's a post reporter and it's a feature story on the dangerous business of dismantling America's aging nuclear plants. And it really just goes through the really complex decades long relationship between America and the nuclear power basically debate, right? Uh, this was something that was embraced really early on. Then, we kind of got spooked by Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, things like that. And now we are kind of sort of seeing a revival, you know, for lack of better options. And the Biden administration authorized the six billion dollar grant to keep uh, nuclear plants that were on the brink of uh, retirement alive. So that's been pretty interesting. Well, that
0: sounds like future uh, fodder for a episode of Plugged In. And I I think I probably uh, have some guests in my Rolodex that I could bring to bear on that. So stay tuned for that. And uh, thank you again for joining us for another episode of Plugged In. Thanks again for listening to season two of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can also keep up with all things energy
1: by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily On Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.